Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. In the words of Keeley Companies CEO, Rusty Keeley, when it comes down to it, there are two things that make Keeley Companies incredible, people and process. The strategic growth model called the Keeley Way ensures that Keeley achieves results on purpose, including five-year visions, scorecards, meaningful action plans. The Keeley Way allows Keeleyans to turn dreams into reality and drives goals to realize visions. Because of this relentless focus on people and culture, Keeley Companies has experienced explosive growth that shows no signs of slowing down. Learn more at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Oh, my friends, we made it. 2020 is just about behind us. The ball is about to drop. We are about to flip the calendar from December into January and from 2020, good riddance to you, into 2021. Now, back in the old days of John O'Leary's world, this was an evening that I would gather with my friends to kick up our heels and have a roaring great old time. These days, with a little bit more wisdom in my life, a little bit more gray in the temples of my haircut, and a little bit more miles on the treads of my tires, rather than racing forward into this day and lifting my glass heights, frequently one that we use to slow down, to take inventory looking back on the year, and begin considering what is success? What were the challenges? What did matter? What were the disappointments? How do we make sense out of it looking backward? And then critically importantly, what do we do with this going forward to ensure that our best days aren't behind us? They weren't when we were young professionals or just out of nursing school or recently married or back in college or on the high school JV team. No, man, we want to make sure that the best days are in front of us. That's my hope for my New Year's Eve. That's my hope as I enter into this new year with my family. And because you are part of my family on the Live Inspired Podcast, I want to make sure that you are able to do this with me, with me. And so I brought on a friend today who is highly inspirational, incredibly well-read. He is a remarkable human being, and you're going to love the wisdom that he has to share about what matters most in your life. His name is Ian Morgan Cron. Egan has an awesome life story that in a moment I'm going to let him share with you. But he's also got some quotes that you ought to write down on the front side of this conversation. Hold me accountable to bringing back in front of him in the midst of the conversation. And then take a little bit of time as you step into 2021 to unpack, to understand, to live into. So in a moment, Ian and I are going to be talking about his upbringing. We're going to be talking about his discovery over the things that matter and how we can do exactly that in our own lives. And he'll be unpacking this. It's kind of like a personality test called the Enneagram. I realize some of you are familiar with it. Some of you know your numbers. And those of you who know what I'm talking about know exactly what I'm talking about. And for the rest of you, if you don't know what the Enneagram is, you're going to learn a lot more about it during our conversation together. But my first quote from Ian that I really loved was this. The Enneagram is a tool that awakens our compassion for people just as they are. Not the people we wish they would become so our lives would become even easier. You'll hear that quote coming up here in a moment. After that, you're going to hear this quote. Here it comes. The beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Uh, you, you can go ahead and hit pause right now, rewind 21 seconds, hit play again, and just loop that again and again and again, because we all are too frequently guilty of that one. The beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. As we wrap up 2020, 
Let us be reminded of that for those around us in the marketplace, including in our families, but also let's be reminded of that for the reflection in our mirror to become perfectly ourselves. So that's the second quote. I told you there were four. Here come two more. Sooner or later, we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. We must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. We must then cast off our false exterior self like cheap and showy garment that it is. And then the final quote that you're going to hear here in a moment from my friend Ian is this. It's not what you do that matters. It's why you do it. It's why you do it. My friends, our lives are complicated. They are not easy. They are made even more difficult in the midst of recessionary winds and challenges that we face due to COVID and virtual fatigue and everything else you have going on in your life. We get it here. But I believe this conversation with Ian today will remind you that although it is not easy, the foundation is indeed firm. There are questions that you can begin asking. The best days do indeed remain in front of us. And there's a process that you can live into that will ensure you get there. You're going to love the conversation with Ian. You're going to love learning more about the Enneagram. You're going to love learning more about the limitless possibility alive and well in being authentically you. Authentically you. So my friends, buckle up for the ride. Here we go. I want you to welcome my friend, and now yours, his name is Ian Cron. Ian, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Man, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it is my thrill. And when I meet people, whether it's the first time at a dinner party or in the back of a church or in a grocery store, I normally extend my right hand. Hi, I'm John O'Leary and, and I do this. And then I hear from them what their name is and what they do for a living. Man, you've got an unusual resume. And so if I'm meeting you at a cocktail party for the first time, Hi, I'm John O'Leary. I'm, I'm a speaker. I'm a podcast host. I'm a father and a husband, and I do a lot of other things like this, Ian. What do you do for a living? Wow. Well, uh, I am uh, an author. I'm uh, a speaker. I'm an Episcopal priest. I'm a trained therapist. Uh, I am a trained spiritual director. I am a songwriter, meaning, you know, I actually get cuts on other people's records. Um, it's not just something I sit around the house and do. Uh, and uh, so I have a very lovely portfolio life of lots of things. Uh, and, uh, but they all are in service to my life's mission, which is helping people enter into deeper conversation with, uh, with God and with themselves. And uh, so I feel very privileged that that's what I get to do. I get, you know, as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I get paid to answer big questions and I can't think of anything more exciting every day than to make a shot at, at helping to illuminate parts of who people are and parts of who God are that they haven't really thought of before. Ian, I, I almost always begin every podcast by having folks go back to the beginning and we'll probably start there in a moment. But when you have these meetings as an Episcopal minister, as an author, as a songwriter, as all these other job titles that you have, and as you get to know people, you, you find similarities in the big questions that they're asking. What is the big question that we're asking? When people are invited into the sacred chamber and they trust you and they lean into you and they look around to make sure it's really safe, what's the question they most frequently ask you? Man, well, that's a good question. I, I would... If I'm going to shoot from the hip, I, 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 maybe I can give you a, a couple. I'm not sure I can boil it down to one, but but one is, who am I? Uh, where do I belong? Am I really loved? And um, what what's my mission? You know, what's what wh why why was I sent here? What's the errand upon which God sent me here? You know, like yeah. what am I doing here? And uh, I mean, those are that's a handful of the questions that I, I, I frequently get from people. And, uh, and and I'd also say, what do I do with my suffering? You know, what do, what do I do with my brokenness? Like, how do I integrate it into who I am so that it becomes a blessing, not a blight? Mm. Uh, guy, you probably read Henry now and wrote about the wounded healer. Yes. And I've always found that the wisest healers in the world that I've ever met, whether they're in corporate America or they're living in Europe or Asia or wherever they might be living and whatever job they might be doing, they have at their core and in commonality, the story that, that seared them, 
like a really something that they endured usually in their childhood, frequently in their childhood. You too had a most unusual childhood. So you're living, I believe, today in Nashville, but that's not where you grew up. Would you take us back to the early days of Ian Morgan? Right. Well, I um, I was born in New York. I, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, a small, uh, wealthy community about 35 miles from midtown Manhattan. Uh, I grew up in a, a, a troubled home with a alcoholic father who died actually of his disease at 63. Never went into recovery. As you can imagine, I won't go into the details. That was a painful and difficult experience. My own journey with addiction has also been a, a very, and my recovery from, from addiction has been a very big part of my, my struggle and story that contributes to my being a wounded healer. Hmm. I'm going to go a little bit deeper into all of that. I know you, okay. you shared in several interviews and in, in a couple of your books about your dad and about the struggles of that. At age 13, I have two children currently 13 or older, and this just blows me away what I'm about to ask. But at age 13, you have your very first sip of alcohol and you fall <laughs> with another sip and another sip and another sip. Would, would you share that very first story of, of sipping alcohol? Oh, man. We're gonna go there, huh? Why mess around? We're gonna do this right here. Five minutes to hear your story, and then for the rest of us to learn why we are here. What do we do with our suffering? What are we supposed to do with love and everything else? So let's just start off with age thirteen. Yeah. So, uh, it was a snow day, and uh, I went over to a friend's house with four or five other kids, and uh, the parents weren't home, which was a terrible mistake on their part to leave five, you know, 13 year olds unattended, unsupervised in their home while they went to work. Uh, and, you know, we got into the liquor cabinet. Uh, and I just, unlike my peers, when I started to drink it, it stopping, as my sister liked to say later in life to me, she said, you know, you don't have the gift of stopping. And, and you know, I proved it right out of the gate, you know, uh, and ended up being dragged off to the hospital in the back of an ambulance for, you know, alcohol poisoning. And uh, that, that was the beginning of a, uh, it was a harbinger of yeah. things to come, you know. Uh, and I write about that in my memoir, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me. And uh, it's told in a little bit more detail and with a little bit more Irish uh, <laughs> flair and humor, you know. <laughs> As an O'Leary, I can both relate with the uh, the addiction to a degree and also the humor and flair with which you shared it. And, and the painful truth, you know, th- there's a quote that says, uh, in our in in our woundedness, we find co- connection and commonality. It's like in the things that we think are most personal, those are actually the very things that are most common and universal. So you shared this thing about this mistake you did at age 13, and it's a cross that you're going to carry for the next decade plus. But it's actually why I fell in love with your story and fell in love with the guy who lived it, not for your perfection, but for your imperfection. Yeah. Well, actually, I've lived with it for the next four decades because it. the the reality is, is that it didn't end there. Uh, I ended up not just with a drinking problem, but with a prescription drug problem and you know, that involved treatment. It involved having to become part of a community of people that, who shared that common illness and with, without whom I wouldn't know how to navigate life really. Mm. Um, And one one of the great revelations of my life has been, was the moment when I realized and accepted, not just knew, but accepted and with gratitude, the fact that I just simply can't do life on my own. I, I can't, I, I don't know how, <laughs> you know, like maybe other people have figured it out, but I have not. And I need support and a community of wisdom that helps me know how to live in the world as a, as a recovering addict. And uh, man, when you accept that with open arms, you know, life gets a lot easier. And, and by the way, just so I'm clear, I, I don't think anybody, well, 
I often will go speak someplace, you know, or do something and some sweet person will come up to me and say, oh, I have a brother or an uncle who's an addict and uh, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> and I say, well, depending on my mood, I, I'll reply with something like, well, you know, I don't know anyone who's not an addict, so I'll be praying for you. <laughs> and there's actually kind of a, a blessing in having uh, an addiction to a substance, which is that you, after a certain point, you can't hide it. Yeah. Right. But I can't tell you how many like pastors and other people I know who have other addictions, whether it's that they can hide for a long forever. Yes. You know, in my instance, in, you know, in my case or in, in other people's cases like mine, eventually other people figure it out. You know what I mean? It's like it just gets public. And so, you know, you either have to do something or you don't. You got to face your shadow or you don't. Uh, you don't live. You know, you're not going to live. Uh, so I actually feel like I was blessed with the gift of desperation. Right. Like I had to deal with it. Um, man, I feel sorry for people who can have, you know, torturous addictions and get away with it yeah for a long time and you you planted and grew successfully a church i believe up in connecticut yeah uh, before we tell that story I mean, was faith always just part of who you were and was it always important to you you know i i would say i grew up in the roman catholic church i went to catholic school until fourth grade so really from a very early age i was immersed in a, a, a christian world you know and uh and I, I learned very early to see the world through Christian eyes. Now, you know, I, probably around sixth grade, we stopped attending church for family reasons. And, and it wasn't until high school, I was in Young Life, and I got involved. And, in, in, you know, I had my second spiritual awakening. How's that? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that, yeah, from the time I was a little kid, I had a very profound sense that the world was a place where uh, God's presence moved in and through all people and things. Uh, and uh, so I feel fortunate that that's how I experienced the world in myself. You, you say that with, with sheer conviction. I would imagine we have listeners, whether they're, uh, you know, driving in a car right now or getting a workout in right now or tuning in from a beach right now anywhere around the world that might say, yeah, that's not true for me. I, I don't see God's life and zest and connection in every human being. I don't even see it in the reflection in the mirror, Ian. So for, for those who might struggle with this idea of, of a God, certainly a loving God, a, a, a father, how do you respond to that? I guess I, what I would tell people in that situation is uh you're not the first there are plenty of people in the bible who felt that way uh, and even after they came into a relationship a living relationship with god had seasons where those questions kept arising you know and uh and so oftentimes i tell people in spiritual direction well ask god for it i mean i don't know how else to, to, to put it it's like well if you don't have that awareness, that, that conscious awareness of God's presence in the world and in your life, ask for it, you know, uh, be open to it. Uh, and uh, be willing would be another thing. Be willing to have that spiritual experience. And I, I think God's faithful and shows up in, in his time, mm. you know. So when, when I get ready for an interview, I always, I, I read the books and I listen to previous podcasts and everything else. So I, I feel like I'm talking to an old friend right now, although you and I only met physically 30 minutes ago or so, but, but Ian, I had like 19 questions just around Ian and we may come back to them in a moment, but I'm, I'm going to speed through this beautiful lady named Ann and come into an older gentleman named brother Dave. Uh, how did you end up meeting a guy named brother Dave and what impact did he have on your life? Yeah, so Brother Dave's a priest and a spiritual director. Uh, spiritual directors are like therapists, except they're not necessarily trained as such. But they're more like doctors of the soul. That's what they used to be called, you know. And, and their task is to help people discern 
sort of the ongoing activity of grace in their lives. Like what's God up to in their lives? Um, and uh, so I had just come out of a very difficult departure from a church and uh, Dave, I went to Dave to kind of help me process it and, and integrate that experience into my life to really recover from resentment and brokenheartedness and, you know, the like. And a uh, very, very wise guy. He's the, he's the man who really helped me understand the Enneagram. I, I knew the Enneagram before that, but they, he really helped me to understand it in a whole new way and apply it to my life. Uh, really fascinating, interesting, wonderful, uh, humorous uh, person that, you know, touched me profoundly. Well, you just, you name dropped a name, the Enneagram. It's a very fancy sounding name. And I would imagine for many of our listeners, they're very familiar with their four or seven or whatever their number might be. But probably for the majority of our listeners, it's a name they're familiar with, but it doesn't really resonate. So what is the Enneagram? Yeah, well, so the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system that teaches there are nine basic personality types in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to feel safe in the world and navigate relationships. Um, importantly, each of those nine types has an unconscious or underlying motivation that powerfully influences how that type acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment on a daily basis, right? Mm. Um, so it's a powerful system for developing self-knowledge and for learning how to show up for life in a healthy way and how to live in the world also as a compassionate and empathic presence mm. uh, in your relationships. And I, I wrote a book about it called The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. I spent a lot of time uh, teaching workshops, mostly in the corporate world, actually, uh, to lots of times senior management teams, CEOs of companies, um, but periodically in churches as well, about how they can use the Enneagram for leadership or for personal development or for faith development, if it's in the right setting. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a blast. The last four years have been a blast doing it. Well, your book begins with you ringing your mother early in the morning and she's completely confused by the word even Enneagram, let alone what to do with it in your life or hers. Yeah. So give us a little bit more context. You say, John, it's a, it's a historically valid, you know, you got all this hist history behind it. Give us a little bit of the history of the Enneagram. Where does it come from? Well, the Enneagram has Christian roots, really. It goes back to the fourth century, actually, to a monk named Evagrius Ponticus. Over time, it, it really evolved out of an oral tradition, just being taught by spiritual director or priest, to spiritual director. The Jesuits in the 20th century used, you know, happened on it and began to use it to, uh, in counseling with young novices, you know, uh, people on an ordination track to become Catholic priests. And then in the 1970s, people like Richard Rohr, Helen Palmer, others began for the very first time to publish books on it. The Enneagram now, as we understand it, is also a hybrid of sort of spiritual wisdom, but also it's very informed by modern psychology. Uh, I'm working with a research psychologist right now on a project and uh, he just published a, uh, an article, a research article in the Journal of um, uh, American Psych, um, journal, you know, the sort of the Journal of Psychology, which is the, you know, preeminent uh, book on or review of uh, major research on typology or psychology. And so it's it's garnered a lot of attention because of its newfound popularity and culture. And so a lot of research is being done on it and it's being found to be very accurate and reliable. So it's, it's a lovely sort of combination of all of those things. And so I, I have a lot of confidence in its validity and its, its wisdom. So I'll let you know, I went to a Jesuit high school and I think our junior year, we had to take this weird Enneagram test and I was a two. <laughs> then as part of a leadership training event, probably in my late twenties, I had to go to this weird clinic where we took the Enneagram and for some reason I was a two. 
And then last night in preparing again for our conversation today, I went to your website and I took my personality test one more time and I was a two. So, it, you know, the, the thing is consistent, if nothing else. So the individuals listening to our conversation right now, most of them don't know what a two is or a one or an eight or anything else. So would you quickly breeze us through and, and tell us what these nine different types are and, and, uh, in any way that you want to use, whether it's describing one person that maybe represents that or what the shadow effect is or something that really allows us to get a better handle on what those numbers represent. Yeah, sure. So uh, ones, type ones are called the perfectionists. I like to call them the improvers, uh, the meticulous, detail-minded, uh, conscientious, morally heroic, principled people. Their unconscious motivation, what drives their pattern, the predictable habitual patterns of acting, thinking, and feeling, think of that as personality, uh, uh, is a need to perfect themselves, others, and the world. Uh, twos are called the helpers, loving, supportive, caring, giving. Um, their unconscious motivation is a need to be needed, right? They, they have this compulsive desire to meet the needs of others, while at the same time, unconsciously, for the most part, refusing to acknowledge their own needs, that they themselves have needs, right? Uh, threes. Before you what? go to three. <laughs> Before you go to three. <laughs> and I, we, could, we could do, you know, I could have a one-to-one -one counseling session with you right now, although I don't think that's appropriate uh, with everybody else tuning in. Instead, I'd like you to share like really what's what's core to, to these numbers you know as we quickly go through and just the facts ma'am sometimes we miss and gosh john and th this is what it really means you know that this this is how it affects the way you show up or a one shows up or as we're about to move now into threes this is what it means for a three this is why it matters to the person who they are but also how they interact with the world itself so yeah before you go into a three just give us a little bit more of a construct or context to the impact of these numbers in our lives? Well, let's just kind of move backwards a little bit and talk about what personality is. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, modern psychology and spiritual teachers throughout for millennia uh, alike have taught that all of us come into the world as an essential true self, right? It, it's our essence, our true self. The reason is, is because um, we have not yet experienced anything in life that necessitated our being anything other than our authentic selves, right? It's like, we just are this essential self. It's not long, however, before we begin to pick up the message from our culture and also from the important people in our life that our true self isn't exactly what everybody wanted or expected. Does that make sense, right? And so I'm not parent bashing here or culture bashing because they actually experienced the same thing growing up as well, right? It's just how it is when you come into a broken world. And so we begin to develop a false self or personality that uh, to protect that true self and to, to meet the desires and wishes of the important people in our life and make accommodations and, you know, and also to get our needs met, right? Like we, we have needs for love, for security, for a, a sense developing a sense of mastery and control in the world. Uh, in the process of that, we, we lose touch with that true self over time. And we begin to think we are this false self or personality. I mean, the word personality derives from the Greek word persona, which means mask. So it's really just a veil, right? It's a, it's a, it's a collection of coping mechanisms, defense stratagems, uh, you know, adaptations, accommodations we had to make in order to win the approval and safety of, in the world, all that stuff. What the Enneagram does is it, is it helps us reconnect with our true self, right? It, it reveals to us the patterns of our personality so that uh, we stop identifying who we are with the persona, our personality, our, our false self. And when I say false, it's not, it doesn't mean bad. It doesn't mean negative. It's just, you know, uh, not who we are, right? So if anything, the Enneagram teaches you that you're not your personality. And that's the mistake a lot of people make with it is, 
oh, this is my type. This is just who I am. You know what I mean? Like you became a helper uh, in part because of hard, hard wiring, but, but also because you picked up a message somewhere that I'll be loved if I meet the needs of others. I'll be safe if I meet the needs of others. But, but what's sort of sad about that, and, and that, by the way, helped you survive as a kid. So I'm not, so it had a purpose for a season. But if you continue to carry that into adulthood, that message, and you continue to live out of that message and identify who you are with, I'm the helper, you know? It's like what helped you survive in childhood begins to really hurt you in adulthood, right? So the Enneagram does is it reveals that. It reveals the unconscious motivation that drives that behavior. And, and, and in doing so, helps you begin to deconstruct and disidentify with those aspects of your personality that no longer serve you. And so long as you're on autopilot, you're just going to keep doing them, mm. even though it often ends up uh, with you engaging in all kinds of self-defeating, self-sabotaging behaviors, right? So as a helper, right? Let me give you an example of this. If you're a helper out there and you're, you, you, know, you are unaware uh, of that and you're just kind of moving through life, you're going to go around meeting the needs of other people while not acknowledging your own even if those people don't ask for your help, right? You may overwhelm people with your effusive personality, your, you know, what can I do for you personality? Because all along you're thinking, I can't be loved unless I meet the needs of other people. People will not love me for who I am. They only will love me for what I do for them if I help them. Now, sometimes that's very genuine love. Other times it's manipulative. So the Enneagram also, I mean, here's the truth about the Enneagram. Uh, if you're looking for flattery, don't play with it, <laughs> right? It, it reveals the shadow aspect. I mean, I would love all day long to take tests like Strengths Finder. I mean, just think of that, Strengths Finder. Who doesn't want to take that test, right? Well, the Enneagram has a way of introducing you to both what's beautiful about you, but first it's going to tell you what's not so great, okay. right? So you're going to learn that there are times when you use helping other people in a manipulative and calculated way. Like it's, it's like, well, I'm gonna help you with the unspoken sort of assumption or agreement that uh, you're gonna meet my needs when I'm, but, but I'm not even gonna have to ask for it because I'm too proud to ask for it, right? So I'm gonna meet your needs, believing that you're gonna meet mine without my needing to do anything for it. Does that, does that make sense? So I, I'm perfect. diving a little too deep here, but this is what the Enneagram begins to reveal. And so it has both spiritual and psychological value right because you shouldn't be doing that anymore yeah <laughs> you know I mean, you sound like my wife right now so yeah <laughs> heard this as recently as last night i know another part of the two is the need for physical touch you know you come into a room and you're trying to hug everybody including the cats and the cats running away and you're chasing it and it's just not healthy yeah i mean i used to i used to teach with a great teacher who used to co-teach stuff and this person would walk out into the room and just as they were teaching, you know, rub a back, <laughs> put a hand on a shoulder, you know what I mean? And I remember saying to this person once, you know, not everybody likes that. <laughs> there are people who do not like to be touched. And they looked at me and they, as, as though I had just, they were stunned as though, really? And I was like, yeah, really? Like, so one of the things the Enneagram does also is it, is it gives you self-awareness and this sort of knowledge that, hey, wait a minute, there are nine different ways of being in the world and not all of them are like mine. Yes. You know, uh, and so it gives you a lot of emotional and relational wisdom in a very efficient and, you know, immediately actionable way. Mm. So th the backstory is so helpful to understand when you're pulling out these numbers and defining them, how they present themselves in us and how they present themselves in others. So th thank you for slowing us down, talking about personality, talking about how we show up and now onward from twos into threes. Yeah, so threes are called the performers. Uh, they are productivity animals. Uh, they get you know, more done than just about any other number on the, on the Enneagram. Uh, they're the folks who have memorized David Allen's book, you know, Getting Things Done. Uh, they, they, they are people who have a need to succeed to appear successful uh, and to avoid failure at all costs, okay? Fours are called the 
uh, the romantics, oftentimes the individualists, that's my type. Uh, they are artistic, creative, imaginative, quirky. Um, they have a need to be special and unique in order to compensate for what they perceive as a, a fatal flaw or missing piece in their essential makeup. Um, fives are, are called the, the investigators. I like to call them the observers as well. Man, the most analytical, uh, objective, hmm. uh, emotionally detached number on the Enneagram. Uh, you know, think, think Bill Gates. If you've ever watched his documentary Inside Bill's Mind, if you haven't seen it, it's unbelievable. That is the story of a five. That is a five. Uh, and these folks have a need to gather information and knowledge, particularly about niche subjects, in order to to, and also to conserve energy, right? In order to fend off feelings of ineptitude and inadequacy uh, and the belief that they only have so many inner resources for particularly for relationships, right? Uh, so anyway, sixes, the loyalists, um, they are practical, earthy, funny uh, people who have a need to feel safe and secure in what feels to them like a chaotic and unpredictable world. These are the, these are the worst case scenario thinker types. They're sometimes called the, the devil's advocates because these are the people who are the first ones to, to spot what could go wrong right. in, in, a, in a project, in, a, you know, in an activity, right? Uh, but, you know, wonderful human beings. Sevens are called the enthusiasts. Uh, Think Robin Williams. You know, uh, these are these are people who uh, have a need to to really avoid painful psychological and, and emotional feelings. Uh, and the way they do it is by always never being in the present moment, but always living into this this imagined future of wonderful escapades. And they're always planning new adventures and trying new things. You know, uh, and uh, they, all of this is in service to how do I stay out of the present moment where the possibility of getting stuck in, in grief, sadness, disappointment, uh, boredom, you know, all these different states, like they just want to avoid them at all costs, right? Uh, eights are called the challengers. Uh, they are typically aggressive, confrontation, very comfortable with confrontational, confrontation and debate. They can be domineering, uh, and they have a need to assert strength and control over the environment and other people uh, in order to mask vulnerable, tender feelings. Mm. Right? Your mother was an eight? What's that? Was your mother an eight? I think I oh, remember. Boy. Yeah, so here's an example of an eight. So I called my mother, I don't know, back in March or something. She's 92 now. And, uh, you know, this is a woman who smoked Paul Malls for 75 of those 92 years. I mean, she is just a force of nature, right? And I said to her, hey, mom, have you, uh, have you been attacked by the COVID you know, virus yet? And she goes, she has a very husky voice. She goes, it wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> That's my mom. I mean, she's just, and you know, my mom, my mom could start an argument in an empty house. I mean, she just, you know, they're just very comfortable with that, right? The problem is not everybody else is. Correct. Right. Including nines who you follow with. Yes. Uh, so nines are called the peacemakers. They have a need to avoid conflict at all costs. Uh, these are people who are easygoing, go with the flow, don't rock the boat, but they want to maintain this feeling of inner calm all the time. They, they, they don't really want life to get to them. They like the status quo. They like routine. They like things to be hakuna matata. So that's the, all of these things I'm describing are unconscious motivations that people don't know are running the show here, right? That th these are motivations that don't need to drive their personalities. And when you don't know they're running the show, they get you into a lot of trouble. So, you know, I, I wanted to have a bit of a pathway to make sure we uh, we ended up at the finish line together and our, and our audience, our listeners came along for the ride with us. So in reading the book, what I did is I pulled out some of my favorite quotes that you shared, and I'm going to read these back to you. And, and it's my hope that you'll tell me what you're saying. 
Okay. Some of them are pretty self-explanatory, but still. You are very prepared, John. This is a little frightening. Most interviews I have, people are just ask these very 50,000 right. questions. I love that you are prepared. You've read books. You've got quotes. I mean, it's like. We have Ian Cronny with us today. Ian Cronny is a Catholic <laughs> priest. Dude, did you do any research? No. All right. So, Ian, this is your quote, my friend. I have about six of them that, that I'd like to go through. The first is, your number is not determined by what you do so much as by why you do it. Yes. So you actually contain all nine types, right? So if you were only to look at the characteristic behaviors or traits of each of those types in order to determine your number, you would be utterly confused. You'd be like, well, I'm a, I sound like a one. I sound like a four. I sound like a five. Well, of course you do. You, you contain all nine types. There's only one that's dominant right? It's a dominant type. And what determines your type is the unconscious motivation. And lucky for us, I just actually went through all nine, right? They have a need to perfect themselves, others in the world. They have a need to meet the needs of others. They have a need to be successful, on and on and on, right? So what you need in order to determine your type is what's the unconscious motivation that fuels these predictable patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting. Because if you just look at the way these types think, feel, and act, you'll get utterly confused because you have all these characteristic features in your own life to some degree or another. What determines type is the unconscious motivation. Thank you. This next one I highlighted, then I drew a heart next to, then I drew like three explanation points next to because I recognize how badly I need to become this. And uh, here's the quote. And I think, and by the way, I would imagine most of our listeners would nod their head in agreement with me if they're being honest. The beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Yeah. That's a big idea, isn't it? <laughs> I'll let you run with that. <laughs> well, that's actually Thomas Merton, one of my heroes. Uh, and, um, you know, all of us would like other people to organize their priorities around ours. That, that's, that's an ego-driven life, right? We, we all would like other people to show up for us in the way that we would like them to, because it would make our life easier if they would just be this way or be that way, act this way, think this way, you know, feel this way. But the fact of the matter is, and you learn this in marriage, usually at about, I would guess around, for me, it was about year 20, when you realize, you know, I'm not going to change this person. <laughs> oh, and by the way, this person will never be a good replacement for the mother I wish I had. Or, you know what I'm saying? In other words, this person, I'm either going to have to love this person for who they are or come up with an alternative plan, which may not be all that great, right? <laughs> so it's like, at some point you have to say, I accept you as you are, not as, not pressure you to become the person I want you to be. And if I continue to do that, the latter, I'm only going to, you know, inflict a lot of damage on you in the relationship you will i will always make the other people feel person feel inadequate damaged not enough right yeah. you just have to learn to accept people for who they are and for who they could be without trying to say okay i gotta pressure this person into being something that would make my life better you have to own your own selfishness in this right it's like yeah, I'm not really want you to be this person for your sake. I want to make you this person for my sake. Right. You know? And once you can own that, and uh, if you will, repent, meaning to rethink your way of being in relationship with that person, you're going to have a really frustrating life. And you'll hurt people. Your kids, your wife, whatever, your colleagues, your friends. You're just going to be banging guardrail to guardrail through everybody's life in a way that's just painful for all concerned. So good, so wise. Uh, the next one I, I, I highlighted because I find both with the Enneagram, but really in all personality tests, those who are advocates for it almost celebrate how they show up. So like I would almost like beat a drum saying, I'm a two, I'm a two, which is odd to me. So uh, I think this quote sums up what you're really trying to get across. 
The Enneagram does not put you in a box. It shows you the box that you're already in and how to get out of it. Yeah, that's a good, I love that quote. <laughs> Each of us has sort of an idealization about our way of being in the world. And it's also something we use to kind of defend ourselves when people attack us, right? So, you know, let's say someone says, well, you know, as a one, I oftentimes feel like you're critical and judgmental, right? You're always trying to improve me uh, and you're doing it according to, your, according to your high internal standards, right? And the, the response could be, I, I'm just trying to improve you. I'm just a good person, right? A two might say, I'm just a loving person. A three might say, yeah, but I get a lot, I get a lot done. I'm successful, right? A four might say, yeah, but I'm an artist or I'm creative, you know? A five might say, yeah, but I'm smart. <laughs> or a six might say, et cetera, right? We all have these sort of idealizations, but really they're a way of avoiding other hard truths like, yeah, two, but you're also really proud. Or a three, yeah, but you're oftentimes deceitful in the way that you present yourself as a successful person, right? Or on and on and on. So what the Enneagram reveals is that you're not your personality, that there's something behind your personality, which is your core self, your true self. And that's what you wanna get back to. This other thing is just a veil. It's just ways of being in the world that help us get our needs met uh, that are dysfunctional right? Now, you're always going to be a loving person, John. So I'm not saying your personality is bad. I'm just saying that there are aspects of it that would you would be well served to decouple yourself from, yeah. you know, and uh, so that you can be your more authentic, true self that you were, you know, here's another quote for you. The Enneagram, uh, reveals to you who you were before the world told you who you were supposed to be, right? And so in order to get there, we gotta also, we gotta show you, well, here's, here's the dark side, <laughs> you know, here's the not so great side. Uh, and that's part of the journey toward getting home, you know? Uh, and, you know, there's a prodigal dimension to the Enneagram, you know? It's like, at one point the sun comes to his senses. And I think what the Enneagram does is help you come to your senses. It's like, oh, I just thought this was who I was. It's not who I am. This is just a kind of a game I play right. called the helper. And I'll always be a helper in a way, but I, you know, until I face the dark side of it, I might be a helper to manipulate people unconsciously or semi-consciously. You know, I'm going to use it in ways this gift of mine in a way that's very self-interested, not a positive. And I've, I've read in one of the articles you wrote that two and a half decades into your marriage, you said, John, it's usually two decades in or so. Well, for you, it was 25 years in that there was this massive fracture and uh, it was beginning to derail the relationship. And it seemed as if there may not be a solution for, for you and Anne. How did how did it come to that in short? I know we're not yeah. going to spend 25 years, but how, how did it get there? Because I think that's not unlike many of the stories that we are writing in our relationships. And then how did Enneagram, how did awareness help, help bring you through that? Well, John, it's, a, it's, a, it's apparent to me that you read a recent guidepost article or something about my wife and I, uh, which sort of details that story. Um, you know, we... Um, We've been married 25 years. We sent our last child off to boarding school and suddenly we're empty nesters. And, you know, when you have three kids at home, you know, how it goes, you, you spend many years distracted from your relationship because you're both of you are focusing so much on raising kids and soccer games and, you know, graduations and proms. And, you know, yes, you, you do your best to, to take care of your marriage, but let's face it, you know, when all the kids are gone, you, you, you have this moment where it's like, who are you? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, now it's time to get to know each other again in a deeper way. And sometimes you look at each other and you're like, who are you? And do I, you know, you realize that there have been cracks in the foundation of your marriage and that when all the kids go, you see them. And then, you know, that's what happened to my wife and I. And it was like, holy smokes. Um, there are parts there were problems in our marriage that we were able to 
get around facing because we were so consumed with raising kids and jobs and all that stuff. And when they were gone, man, well, now they were right smack and center, you know, and it's like, oh boy. And they weren't good. They weren't good. And it was the Enneagram that really helped us go, oh, hmm. I actually didn't know you anywhere as much as I thought I did. And you're actually more beautiful and wonderful than I ever thought you were. And at the same time, you have a lot of growing to do. I have a lot of growing to do. We can help each other. And it gave us a language to talk about our interior world. It, it saved us a lot of time in therapy, you know, uh, because it just revealed things very quickly that we immediately resonated with. It was like, oh my gosh, that is describing me in a way that I actually could never have described myself. And, you know, it became a real source of healing and bonding between the two of us. And so I, like, I'll tell you something, if you want the best premarital stuff in the world, you know, like people come to me, used to come to me all the time for premarital work. And I'm like, just take the Enneagram, meet with me twice. I think we'll be good to go. <laughs> you know, We don't have to sit around here like doing a lot. This is going to tell you who you're marrying. You know, it's pretty powerful. So I'm, I lay next to a one every night and being aware of that when I'm on allows me to love her for who she is, not for who I wish she was. Totally. That's the power yeah. of it, man. You're not trying to bend them towards you. They are who they are and that's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and as long as both of you are willing to do the necessary work to grow into the highest expression of who you are, it's going to be a great ride. If only one of you is willing to do that, it's going to be a little rugged. Um, if the other is very, very resistant to change. Uh, and each type can be, you know, is on a continuum from being healthy and self-aware and very functional uh, or very unself-aware, unwilling to change, stuck and rigid, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we, to the degree that both are self-aware and committed to change, things are going to work out great. In a lot of our listeners are in their 40s and 50s. Some are older, some are younger, but a lot of our listeners are somewhere in that sweet spot midway through their life. And you've spoken before about the midlife crisis and why so frequently it seems to happen around midlife. Tell me why that is. You know, I think, um, uh, you know, the first, I think, uh, how is this? I'll frame it up maybe in two ways. One is, I think that in the first half of life, we're, we're trying to answer one question and right around midlife, we kind of get exhausted. And then we're open to the, maybe the, the question of the second half of life. The first half of life question is something like, uh, am I adequate? Hmm. Can I meet life's demands? Uh, can I crush it out there? You know what I mean? It's like, can I really kill it? And then you get to about midlife and you're exhausted from that journey. It's sort of like, you know, you've either succeeded at it, you haven't succeeded at it. You're, not, you're, you're realizing I'm not defined. It's not enough to be defined by my successes or my accomplishments or my achievements or anything. Yeah. Uh, and you, you're like, there's got to be something more. And then this, that's sort of the soul summoning us, right? And then in the second half of life, the questions become more soulish, you know, questions of the soul. It's like, who am I? Why am I here? What will my life mean when I die? Uh, you know, sort of bigger existential questions that go bigger than how am I going to get the kids to the soccer game? How am I going to make this business trip? How, you know, how do I, how do I buy a new house? You know, it's like in the second half of life, there are very few firsts. In the first half of life, there are a zillion firsts, right? your first date, you know, uh, hopefully not your, just your first marriage, but your first marriage, your, your first car, uh, your, you know, going to college for the first, going away from home for the first time, et cetera. Second half of life, not as many firsts, right? And so at the second half of life, think of it this way, maybe. The first, if you, if people are, are familiar with the Bible, let's say, and most people may know these stories, but the first half of life is like the parable of the talents, right? You're, you're just picking up rocks and trying to figure out all the gifts that are buried beneath them. And how can I capitalize on them so that they yield more money, you know, more dividends, yes. not money, but just dividends, right? And the second half of life is more like the prodigal son. It, it's more like, uh, how do I go home again? Mm. How do I get back home? How do I forgive myself? 
How do I forgive the world? How do I forgive the ones who hurt me? Uh, how do I uh, reconcile myself with what happened to me in the first half and uh, gain acceptance and healing? And not to say that some of that doesn't happen in the first half. I'm just saying that if there's just a paradigm change into that second half. And there's nothing sadder in my experience than when you meet somebody who's in the second half of life who is still stuck in the first half of life agenda. When, when you're sitting next to a 70 year old at a cocktail party, who's still bragging about what he used to make at the law firm, that's pathetic. You know what I'm saying? You sort of sit there and you go, still, really dude? Like you're still on that, you know? Or, or who's still like, you know, talking about where they went on vacation or where they went to college. And you're a little bit like, really? Like that's still what's preoccupying you? It's like, wow, you just kind of never grew up. Uh, and so, I hope that helps. It's like you're, you're yeah. So is the goal then to expedite toward the second half as quickly as possible and, and not really have those first life more shallow questions? Or is it just to enjoy the journey? No. And recognize eventually yeah. you flip the coin and you get to live the second half. You have to live those questions in the first half. You don't have a choice. You know what I'm saying? In other words, you. I'm not, again, I'm making this very simplistic, but I asked a lot of those second half questions in the first half of life and some things the you know just suffering will help you start to answer you know i've met 28 year olds it's not chronological okay it's not like at 40 some switch goes off in your mind and that's right. it i've met 28 year olds who i think have already sort of moved through the agenda of the first half of life but why because they had cancer or they had some profound moment of suffering or some profound spiritual awakening or some whatever the case may be but it's extraordinary for the typical person, that first half of life is sort of laid out for you and you got to run its course. There's just no way around it. It's, it's unusual that people would not have to sort of answer the questions of adequacy in the first half of life. And uh, I would say in the second half of life, you have a little bit more, you know, if you don't hit a wall in your 40s, 50s, you know, where it's sort of like, I am exhausted or, or I've answered those questions or now what, you know, it's like, you're, you're, it's like I said, it's sad when I meet people who have not crossed the meridian over <laughs> into that next stage of life. You know? Yes. I, I'm sure our mind's eye, we all have a few people that, that dance somewhere into our, yeah. into our periphery right now. The, the book is called the road back to you. It's an awesome book. It's written by my friend, Ian Morgan Crone. Where can we learn more about the work that you're doing, Ian? Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, Ian Morgan Cron, I-A-N-M-O-R-G-A-N-C-R-O-N.com. And uh, obviously, buy the road back to you at Amazon or, you know, Barnes and Noble or wherever you buy your books, right? Bookstores, wherever. Um, the um, uh, website will tell you about my podcast typology on which I interview lots of people of different Enneagram types and so that you can hear about what it's like firsthand through their eyes to, to be in their world, to be inside their world, right? Um, another resource would be my Enneagram assessment, the IEQ-9, which you can learn about on my website. Um, it's in my mind, the it, no, it's a fact. It's the most valid, reliable assessment research-based assessment out there. Uh, you can learn about my new course, True You, which is sort of a, a 2.0 kind of learning experience for people who've had some experience with the Enneagram, want to go deeper in understanding their type. Uh, so there's a lot of resources there. And of course, on social media, on across all my channels, it's at Ian Morgan Cron. And we have seven questions that tether all of our beautiful guests together. They're rapid fire questions with- Oh no, I've had these. Oh no, I've had these. Yeah, A, A, B, C, or D. Hey dude, I took 189 question survey last night from you. So the, the least you can do <laughs> right now is to answer- Yeah, but so worth it. Look, you got a 44 page report out of it, man. <laughs> I did and it was awesome. So uh, congratulations on that tool. So here we go. Question number one for Ian. What is the best or most impactful book you've ever read? Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life by James Hollis, the Jungian therapist, James Hollis. Why? Well, I mean, we just kind of covered some of that material. Um, 
and uh, just now in that last sort of segment. Um, but I mean, Hall is just surgically, surgically uh, unpacks um, what is the human experience, uh, particularly in the second half of life, just lays it out. And he's a gorgeous writer, just a, just a beautiful writer, probably in the world of fiction, maybe the brothers Karamazov or Anna Karenina, you know, one of those two. Yeah. And what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Uh, I, I guess I would say that it's, uh, unfettered creativity you know when you get older you don't ask you when you're a little kid and you're writing a song or you're writing a poem or you're just doing anything creative or imaginative and remember i'm a four artist so this is important to me i you know you you're not thinking well what does the market want yeah <laughs> you know like what'll sell you're not thinking um uh, you know what will so-and-so think of this poem or you know <laughs> what would bob dylan say about this song i mean you know what i mean you just do it and yeah. that's the, and then that's where genius emerges. But you know, you get older and you, you have to work a lot harder against feeling like without those questions influencing your creative process too much. Mm. If your home caught fire and all living things are out safely, family, children, pets, and you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would race back in and save? Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is... Uh, Gosh, this is gonna sound shallow, but the first thing that comes to my mind is I have, you know, beautiful guitars uh, that I would be like, no, <laughs> not the guitars, you know. And so, uh, and mandolin. I mean, you know, these are there's a lot of songs that are inside those guitars, histories of songs that I would not like to lose, you know. Grab the guitars, man. It's not shallow. It's it's all good. If you could sit on a bench on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead. Who would you want to be seated right next to? I don't know. The first thing that comes to my mind is uh, the Catholic monk and writer Thomas Merton. Wow. Probably. Why? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, I was 28 was a, when a, I discovered... A lot, of, a lot of our listeners would not have read Merton. And so that, you know, they don't... I don't think they understand the sophistication and the simplicity of this guy. So what is it about him that you would... Uh, you'd want to seat, be seated right next to him. Yeah, he was the subject of my doctoral work. I, I'd say that Merton, more than any other writer, when I read Merton, I thought I have found someone who really understands me mm. and who I thought really, um, I understood his struggles and, and I felt like he understood mine. And I remember reading chapter five of the New Seeds of Contemplation. I, was, I even remember where I was sitting. I was 28 years old. I was sitting in a church and I read that chapter and it literally changed the direction of my life. Wow. My understanding of the world and of myself. And uh, yeah, that, that book, was, well, you're as a Catholic kid, so you know all about Thomas Merton. I mean, you know, he looms large in 20th century, you know, Christian thinking among the Catholics. And uh, he was maybe top, definitely top 10 religious geniuses of the 20th century in my mind. Hmm. Well, moving on from Thomas Merton into the next question, what is the best advice he or anyone else ever gave you? You know, uh, Merton was the first one to start talking about like the true self and the false self, right? And I think what Merton would say is, well, he said this. Here's a quote from Merton. To, be, to become a saint mm. right, means to become my true self, to become who I really am. And I think what he's saying there is that, you know, that's the summit in the spiritual life is to become who you are. And uh, I mean, think about it. Like, how does a tree give glory to God? By being a tree. <laughs> you know, how does, how does a horse give glory to God? by just being a horse. But human beings are the only creatures in all of creation who can actually put on a mask to be some, to pretend to be something other than who they really are. So the process of becoming who you really are is a lifelong struggle, right? Because we, wear, we have a lot of masks, right? So that's the kind of stuff Merton teaches. And it's like, man, oh man, I remember reading that stuff and I was like, I got hit in the head with a baseball bat. 
and just hearing you say it, like we, we could spend hours more unpacking any single sentence that is being shared. But uh, unfortunately, some of our listeners want to get on to uh, onto the I next don't blame them. And I'm tired. I get tired of listening to myself, too. So, you know, whatever. Well, hey, listen, if you're open to it, I'm having you back. So question number six is, what would you tell your 20 year old self? What advice might you give yourself looking back to that 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 two decade old boy? Uh, the fraternity boy, I understand, outside of college in Maine. Well, um, you're in good hands. Awesome. Ian Cron, it has been said that all great leaders, and I'm on the line with one right now, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? We're loved. Ian Cron, we are loved. You uh, are a wonderful mirror of that love. And I want to thank you for spending some of your day with us right now. Thank you. Really highlight of my day. Really fun to talk. My friends, that is Ian Cron. He's the author of a book I just finished reading. And I think you should check it out too. It's called The Road Back to You. My name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. What started in 1976 as a local paving company has grown into a national provider of construction, infrastructure, wireless, technology, development, and logistic solutions. Over four decades and 1,800 Keelians later, Keeley Companies' roots still guide them. In the words of their founder, Larry Keeley, quality and service never go out of style. 